You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Kirk, I'm going to start off with an apology. Did not expect that. To you and to the entire men's field at the Asheville Spartan Race. Also still wondering what you're about to say. Yeah, you, you probably don't don't remember this, but you raced. And this was super insensitive of me and arrogant. And I watched the replay the next day and we were talking and I said, you know what? I'm just not super impressed. Do you remember me saying that? I, I said, I just feel like people haven't taken the next step. People look so trashed and slow out there. Do you remember me saying that? I don't remember the first sentence that you just said, but I do remember the sentiment of you saying that. Yeah. I rewatched it yesterday while working out. Ah, no, no, okay. no, no. Saturday, I did max gain on the treadmill. Ooh, 60 minute max gain? 60 minute from max vert. And I had that on. It was so impressive. <laughs> I don't know what I saw. I don't know if I saw the wrong clip. Maybe it was just like a, a cell phone clip of one transition towards the end of the race. Because I remember especially thinking Mark Botris and Chris Brown looked slow in this <laughs> clip I watched. And I watched the race and I realized... The running is at an all-time high in this sport, and that race had some of the most aggressive running I've seen in our sport. So I don't know what I saw, but I owe an apology to you for being insensitive and saying, like, you didn't even make the podium, and I'm not impressed about the level of competition. And then to everyone else who was there, because people were flying, and everyone was working hard. And not in a, I'm working hard slowly, I'm working hard running fast, and some people are just faster. Well, I can take your face off my dartboard now, Bracken. I can keep it up there. Use it for motivation. But I felt <laughs> bad. And I saw there there were some clips of you and you were moving. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm curious about, like, how would there be such a stark difference between your, your feelings? On Ever watched a movie or something when you're in a weird mood or when you were at a Napoleon different Dynamite. Napoleon Dynamite. Okay. Went and watched that movie. Thought it was the worst, weirdest movie I've ever seen. And I watched it 20 times since. It's the best thing ever. Okay. So this is this was that for me. I don't know if I was in a weird mood or if it was really just on Instagram Live. I saw someone's story or something where I just caught one clip and maybe they were coming like at the top of that final climb or something and everyone's legs were trashed. And then five seconds later, they were back to five flat pace. And I missed that part. But whatever it was, I totally misjudged the race and how it went because I watched that this time thinking I would have been a mile behind. When the first time I watched it, I thought, man, I would have snuck in the podium here. And I was totally, totally wrong. Huh. I appreciate your apology, which is completely unnecessary. I don't think anybody was sitting there stewing over your, uh, you know, impressions of that race, but I only told you, was that off? That was off Mike. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it might've even been a text, but I, I remember just saying, wow, I just, I'm, maybe people are still trash from Utah. Cause I'm not impressed with what I just saw. And I must've seen something out of context because that I am so impressed with that race now. Well, I'll tell you what, like, um, it's funny. We're talking about a race. What that happened? Like 
a month and a half ago, a month, five weeks yeah. ago. But um, a lot of times, you know, when you watch a camera angle on course, and I think any athlete who's raced these races can testify to this is like, it, it never looks as steep as it, as it is ever. Right. It always seems about, it's like, it's like half. Right. Yeah. And so there's, there was moments in that race where we were running up like that five to 8% grade where it looked like we were flat and sluggish. And then that last climb was 40%, which you probably didn't get from the, you know, the live stream. So, um, and then coming off of that onto flat terrain and then having to run fast probably didn't look super impressive. So I could see how that would happen, point being. You know what did look impressive, though? When I, re- when I rewatched this again, because I watched that and then I watched West Virginia on my cool down, people are running hard these days. Hard. Like racing hard. And getting out so hard, too. Dude, harder than ever. Mm-hmm. Even in a beast, if you're not out in like five-minute pace, yeah. <laughs> you're in the middle of the pack. Yeah, it was wild. So there, I'm done with that. Well, I feel so much better now. Do you? I do. Good. All right. And you're done camping these days. Are you finally back at the homestead on a regular basis? Yeah, we have one more trip planned. Do I look different to you? You have a five o'clock shadow, but my guess is it's like a 30 o'clock shadow. Yeah. Well, I'm a truck owner now, Kirk. So uh, it comes with a beard. Excuse me? Yeah. You bought a truck? Looking at a man with a pickup truck now. And so like, I woke up this morning and I just had this full face of hair. You bought a pickup truck? Yeah. So the next the next camping trip is going to be a little different. We're not tugging it along with a, a Dodge Grand Caravan anymore. I have never been more proud of somebody in my whole life. What can I say, Kirk? I'm a changed <laughs> man. What'd you What'd you buy? Why and what'd you buy? I know this is this is sort of like I feel like this is sort of like the chat we have before we hit the record button right now. <laughs> this is <laughs> like very this off is the whole, rails. We talk, we talked for like 20 minutes before we record. And we catch up on life stuff and then we start are recording, but, uh, sorry, you're catching this, but now I got to know bracket. Well, I've, I'm sitting here talking and, and I'm looking at my, my, my camera view right here. And I realized that that's a man there with a beard and a truck. Yeah. And I just wanted to make sure that was coming through. You're listening to two men's with men's man, <laughs> men, men with beards and trucks, beards and trucks. What did you get? Uh, Ford F-150. Oh my goodness. Good for you. Now there's there's a caveat to all this. I've been I've been looking for a while, pricing things out, and I was looking midsize. But Lisa's aunt has an old F one fifty that she hasn't driven in two years. We saw her camping the last trip, and turns out she's looking to just get rid of it because she's tired of paying the insurance on it. So we're we're buying it. Oh, for that's her. exciting though. So it's not like I went out and bought a shiny new seventy thousand dollar F one fifty. But that's a uh, camper camper towing machine right there. Oh, it's a hauler. All right, and last distraction, I'm actually taking my camper out on the uh, maiden voyage this next weekend, so I'll, uh, I'll let you know how it goes. Big deal. That's good. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for you. Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, should we jump into it today, you think? Yeah, yeah, let's jump in. Let's jump in. So this uh, this topic is actually credit to two of my athletes, Natasha and Dan. They live over the big pond, and we had a catch-up phone call uh, this weekend, and they said, hey, you did a checklist for runners uh, or athletes. Like, what what should you do in your training? But you didn't say what not to do and common pitfalls and mistakes that runners and traps that we fall into. So 
Um, today, we are doing the flip side of the coin. Yeah, and it makes so much sense. We like to think that we're on top of everything, but neither of us thought of doing what what to avoid, those common pitfalls. And Natasha sitting over there, and she knew it. She's probably out on a run eating a soggy ham and cheese sandwich in the rain, and an mm-hmm. inspiration struck her. And look, listen, real recognize real. That was a good <laughs> idea, so we're going with it. Go back and listen to the Natasha Menzel episode if you want to hear about soggy sandwiches in the rain. Um, fun fact, do you know this about uh, Natasha and her fiance, Dan? Um, they uh, built a koi pond or like a, a fish pond in the back of their yard. And they bought two goldfish a few months ago. And do you know what they named those two goldfish? If it's Kirk and Bracken, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die and go to heaven right now. It's Kirk and Bracken. One oh my is- <laughs> goodness. I felt too egotistical even just hoping it could be that. I can't believe I didn't share this with you until this moment. Um, one is like pretty white. <laughs> like it's like white and clean. And then the other one's like an orangish, I believe, which makes sense because I'm a little gingy. So anyways, they have two goldfish named after us in the wow. pond. And once in a while, I get a video of like them feeding them and she's reminding me of their names. So are there bets on which one of us goes belly up first? You. Me. Yeah. I'm just not a survivor, huh? I'll ask her after this episode and we'll see what she says. But anyways, uh, <laughs> continue. That's high praise. Got a goldfish named after me, huh? Yeah, we made it. We have beer and we got goldfish, so we're, we're doing something right. There's not much left in this world to conquer. You've had a personalized beer and a goldfish named that. I think that's that's better than <laughs> someone naming a child after you. <laughs> Uh, that's fair. That's fair. So, so moving on to the topic again, um, I think we should pick some low hanging fruit first. Yeah. Let's pick the low hanging fruit and then let's like split hairs. How's that sound? I like it. Can I start? Please. All right. So one thing that runners should absolutely avoid doing that a lot of runners do is forcing a number of miles for the sake of hitting that number of miles. I, it's, I, to me, it's one of the most common things. I live with it. My wife does that. I used to do it. College teammates for years did that. And we all know that just probably dozens of people in our running sphere who I have to hit 60 this week, or I have to mm-hmm. hit 30 or whatever that number is hitting it for the sake of hitting it. I, you know, and that's how we all start, isn't it? Miles. Mm-hmm. How far did you run? I ran my first three miles without stopping. I did this many miles. It's miles, miles, miles all the time. And then that's easy to become the fixation when reality, the body doesn't necessarily work in a way in which it knows how many miles you put on your feet for physiological adaptation. Yeah. So I I agree with that first one. And it's, it's really on everyone's like on their ledger. It's, It's everyone's fault in the industry, because we all talk in miles and coaches and athletes are famous for saying, if you don't run X number of miles, you'll never be successful. And I, mm-hmm. I cringe every time I see that because it's always a number that only makes sense with our math system. You see 80, hundred and 120 a lot as an elite miler, you have to run 70 to 80 miles a week minimum, or you'll never be world-class or as a marathoner, you have to run hundred to 120 miles a week. Well, what happens at 95? What happens at 98? What if we didn't have the decimal system? What if we weren't based mm-hmm. on units of 10? Would we still choose 100 miles and 80 as our units? Or would 78 and 98 or 92, would, would it still be just as good? And that's what 
really frustrates me. And, and also you see people talking kilometer versus mile and it never aligns mm-hmm. ever, ever, ever. It's never like 160 kilometers a week is what you have to run. You see 140 a lot. Well, 140 is not a hundred miles. And so like, where's the disconnect? Do miles hit differently in different hemispheres? Or is it just the fact that we are kind of a slave? We are beholden to our current systems. Yeah. That's also a uh, sort of a segue into runner's OCD coming out. Very true. Bizarre ways with the mileage thing. Well, and what's the purpose? And I know we're going a little deeper into this than usual, but what's the purpose of miles? Like, what are we trying to do by running volume? Well, what's actually happening in your system or what are we? Yeah, what's the intent? What are we trying to cause to happen? It depends on the style of workout, but we're intending to get a cardiovascular response and sustain Mm it. Uh, So we uh, provoke physiological adaptation. And what are those physiological adaptations? Uh, One big one's capillary bed density, right? Mm -hmm. Increased mitochondria, red blood cell density, those things. Yeah, oxygen transport. All those things are going to improve every time you raise your volume up until some point. Then there's diminishing Mm -hmm. returns and then there's no return, only added fatigue. But those aren't boom or bust systems. It's not like your body says, we hit 60 last week and we laid down eight new tracks in mitochondria bed here. So (laughs) we need to hit 60 this week or we're going to lose those eight. Well, what if I take an off day after 52? Well, you've still been developing the whole time. And how many times do we see someone like, I hit 40 miles a week no matter what? Oh, man, I've got to get 14 in on Saturday because I'm not going to be able to run Sunday. Mm-hmm. Like Fred Clary, is that how your body works? Nope. I had a hard 10-miler yesterday, but I've got to go out and do five more in the morning in, in order to get my 30-mile week. Is that how the body works? Yeah. Yeah. I told you I just saw that guy last week, didn't I? No, you didn't tell me. Yeah, Fred Clary, I saw him twice. I got I got my neck and my back cracked by him. It's good to see him. Did you tell him how much I talk about him? I did. I said that we refer to you in an obnoxious level. Uh, and he says he's still getting people messaging him on his Instagram account, which is mostly him and his family. But yeah. Um, good. Well, I agree with that. And I think it's a hard trap. Not Like when you start running, or even if you've been a runner for a long time, then you have to decide, like, what are you going to gauge what are you going to gauge what you're doing off of? Right. So then we, you know, I guess we can't just tell people what they're doing wrong and we have to give them an alternative. Right. So if you don't want to get focused on mileage, um, what, what do you, how do you suggest somebody goes about it? And the simple answers go by hours, which is its own trap, but at least you can replace running hours with bike hours or pool hours and still hit your, your quota. If you are the OCD style endurance athlete, which is a high percentage of endurance athletes. (laughs) Yeah. I agree. It's the lesser of two evils, but it's also still a a measurement of duration. We will call it. So it's a tough trap. I, I, I think that, um, if you're going to look at the whole thing, for me, I, I generally want to know how much time I've spent doing quality work every week. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be more important to my fitness and my body than overall volume. So, you know, I could do 40 minutes of quality work throughout the week and spend most of the rest of my week doing barely anything. And that's going to keep my needle moved or it's going to at least keep it stationary instead of detraining. So, so I actually think people should go and look at like how much time did I actually go and work hard with a purpose this week? 
I like that one as much as anything. And then the rest, it's called listening to your body. If you need the recovery, if you don't hit your mileage that you're looking for, whatever, but at least you hit the two big bullet points each week, let's say, which would be quality work. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have that in your head that I want to hit this number, but not at the expense of what comprises the number. Exactly. The number 80 miles per week is not the magic formula. It's the numbers that fill up the 80. How is that mm -hmm. comprised? And making sure that you stick to your plan rather than stick to your number. They're very yep. different things. And as soon as that reality adjustment happens, you're just much better off. And honestly, it's more enjoyable. Yeah. Much more enjoyable. And, and you and I have both run into this in the past. And we had to grow through this in order to be able to, to really realize how detrimental it was to our running. Yep. Well, yeah. And I mean, geez, we, I think we mentioned this last episode too, but being like collegiate athletes and it was always mileage. I turned in my running log to my coach, who was fantastic, a lot of respect for him, but you know, how many total miles did you run this week was circled at the bottom of the page. Yeah. And a lot of people could fall into that trap. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Okay, so that's my first low-hanging fruit. Do you have one? Yep. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, my first low-hanging fruit, the do not do this uh, box to check would be um, running too hard every day. And I know we're kind of, we're at like, you know, running 101 here. And most of you know all this and you've heard us speak about it. But uh, for any new listeners, it's important to touch on this stuff. And running too hard every day, I think some people think about running too hard every day as like, I'm going to go out and pound until I fade home and my heart rate's at 190 and, and it's like clear that I'm going to max level effort. But that's not what we mean by running too hard every day. That's a, that's misunderstood a lot of times. Running too hard every day is kind of that common run, like for your average runner who goes out and runs and gets breathing heavy and works hard and sort of surges and slows down and, and they're keeping themselves at like some sort of intensity level that's uncomfortable, but also like manageable. So mm -hmm. they go and they sit in that uncomfortable yet manageable phase every time they go out and run. Your wife is probably a prime example of this, yeah. um, which is fine. She's not working out for performance. We're talking performance here. So um, it's that like, uh, I'm not like super enjoying myself, but I'm also not miserable. That is like the biggest pitfall that new runners fall into that, that feeling, I would say. Yeah, that is, it's, it's not quality workouts every day that is overtraining generally. It's correct. Moderate runs every day that leads to it where it's not an easy run and it's not a hard run. So you're not reaping the benefits of a quality day, but you're not reaping the recovery and the regeneration of an easy day. You're, you're straddling the line without realizing you're really straddling it. And that's, that's what a lot of people do. And yeah. again, we've done that in our life. We were college runners, which means we ran too hard on our easy days. Mm -hmm. And short term, you get very fit. Most of these things we talk about, forcing mileage, it gets you fit very quickly. It's just not sustainable long term. And so, yeah, if I had six weeks to get into shape, I'd probably overreach for four of those weeks. Mm-hmm. But it's not something I could then repeat that cycle for 50 weeks out of the year with two weeks down and call it a, a year and do it again next year. It's we want long term progression of an athlete. And so we're not talking about what can get us fit quick. We're talking about what can keep us fit for years. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of the important thing, right? Yeah, very much so.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in like in college, if you think back, I, I can think of this for sure. Um, damn it, my peaking window, I would pop a few good races. It might span three weeks. And then suddenly I didn't quite feel like myself again or the same. And I couldn't quite get to that level because we were so intense for such a focused period of time that our our peak lasted uh, for you, I don't know, a few weeks, right? And I couldn't achieve what I used to be able to achieve in a very short amount of time later. And that's kind of the testament to what you're saying. You can't sustain it. Sure, did I have some great performances? Oh, yeah, of course I did. But it was so short-lived in this like sport uh, of life and running. That's that's not going to get you anywhere. That's just going to cause you to stagnate or even get worse over time. 100%. So I like that. Yeah. A, we shouldn't hit numbers of miles just for the sake of doing it and forcing it in there no matter what your body's feeling like. And B, you have to you have to spread out your efforts. It can't be moderate every day. Yeah. And I, I just, again, I want to retouch on the, or overemphasize the point about like you, <laughs> running t- like in that zone where you just go out for a run. Like I'm just going out for a run. Like that run is the run that we're talking about. Like, I, uh, you know, ate too much over the weekend. I need to go run it off on Monday or, Oh, I did this. If you care about how fast you go at the end of the day um, and performance, that's actually like, sure. Maybe it serves its purpose once in a while, but it's, it's the trap, so to speak, mm-hmm. to, to putting a ceiling over your fitness. So just wanted to reiterate that. I have two points that draw off those first two points. The first is that I have a good friend of mine who says, you know what? I can't run any more quality because I won't be able to hit my volume. Mm. Like I can't add, I can't go more specific with my quality days because I've got to hit 100 to 110 a week. And Same, if I, sorry, and, sorry. And if, and yeah, and if I, and if I hit quality, it's going to compromise my ability to put yeah. more time on beat. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's, that's focusing on the wrong metric. I can't run more quality. I can't. And he only does one, maybe half a quality workout a week. It's like a, he does basically two cut downs per week where two days per throughout the week, he'll be feeling good and he'll just kind of roll that run a little bit. So he's hitting hundred to 110 per week, but he still, I think started as a 340 marathoner and he's down to 320. Pop a 310, fade to 330. Pop a 310, fade to 330. So he's to the point where he's diminishing returns. Yeah, yeah. But he can't run his quality for the sake of his quantity. Rather than saying, you know, if I just drop my volume a little bit, then I can hit a second quality workout and let's see what that does to my fitness. Mm -hmm. And then I know another athlete on the other side who will not raise his volume up because he won't be able to hit three quality days per week anymore. Mm. Like I need my intervals. I need my threshold and I need a quality long run session every week. And if I don't get that, I know that that my ingredient is missing and I won't be as good as I can be, but he's only running 30, 35 miles a week, which for some people is a lot, but he's been at 30, 35 miles a week for probably six or seven years. Is he improving? No. And in fact, he's starting to get worse. So both of these athletes that you're outlining are stuck in opposite traps, but also both stagnate, stagnated. Yeah. And this athlete is actually um, getting faster at workouts, but slower at races. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think he's getting better at his workouts, but his, his fitness is declining because he's just never really recovering. And he could do that by taking away a workout and adding some more easy volume in there. But both people mm-hmm. are afraid to compromise 
the one metric they prioritize over another metric that might matter more. It's an interesting point. Two points I want to touch on. One is um, it's interesting. Like you hear about people, you start to, you know, as a coach, you've read a lot like, like I have, and you start reading about people getting better at workouts, but their race performances don't change because something that they're doing in training necessarily isn't correlating or their attitude or how they, their relationship with that workout is they just get good at mastering execution. That's a tough balance between having that translate, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to my next low hanging fruit. Oh, you got, okay. All right. Okay. And that is that you, all athletes need to be choosing their quality sessions wisely. They have to be progressive in nature and they have to work on the aspects of fitness that you need working on. And I'm going to start by using my my friend as an example where he has two or three staple workouts mixed in amongst probably six or eight other workouts he does. And I would actually say that's correct. You don't want too many workouts mm-hmm. because you do want to be able to progress your work. I think you can get all the way... I think you are better off doing less workouts and repeating them and progressing them than you are from doing constant variety because I think the body responds to repetition. However, he's repeating workouts that are pretty convoluted. They have a lot of moving pieces in them. And I believe that the simpler the workout is, the more that you can focus on improving your metrics. 100%. Let's say one-minute intervals or two-minute intervals or three-minute intervals with set rest in between. There are no moving pieces there. There's no transition to master. There's no technique to master. It's just an engine, time, distance. That's it, heart Mm -hmm. rate. And so you know it's black and white whether you're getting better or worse. But he has transitions from one modality to another, and he has terrain changes, and he keeps cutting down his time on these workouts. But his fitness isn't changing much because... Mm -hmm he starts backing off a little bit on a run portion, knowing that if I back off here, but I can really hit this transition hard, my net time is faster. But he's actually underworking the portions that he should be working hard and overworking a portion that's a construct of the workout rather than a requirement of his upcoming race. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, he's just, he's turning the knobs within the workout and sure certain portions may be getting better and some may be getting worse, but the end result still is kind of the, the same, which yeah. I, which I get the, the tough part to like navigate sometimes as a, as a coach and workout prescription kind of deals with this. It's like, <clears throat> like we talk about 400 meter repeats. Like it's like the generic off brand at the grocery store because it's like, everybody does that and everybody can get that. But like, People have been talking about 400 meter repeats for the last 50 to 70 years because it, it works. Like it's a it's a reason. So simple workouts that can be replicated and maybe tweaked for better performance, like still are valid. And as a coach, sometimes we've talked about this before. I think me and you have touched on it about feeling like you need to prescribe variety just to keep the athletes ADD mm-hmm. happy and progressing when when really like it's okay to be simple. You are doing enough. You don't need to create a, something that's wildly elaborate to progress. So right. I've seen that a lot. For example, one of the things my buddy does is he likes to switch between machines and running. Okay. And he's got this spin bike, but because it's a Peloton, he has his clipless shoes in there. So he's got to strap in and strap out. 
Yep. And I have, I know for a fact, one of the ways he's gotten better is he's more efficient jumping on and off the bike and getting right up to work and slipping his feet in and out of his running shoes. Mm. However, it allows him to get to the treadmill faster and then he can relax a bit at the start of the interval. So he's actually getting less running work as he gets better at transition. So again, you're teaching to the wrong test to steal a phrase that we've used in the past, but this is why I really like simple workouts. I think if there's one knock to my coaching sometimes, it's that some people find it boring because I use very simple, like there are times where you could do multi-paced training or you could do intervals that start at one distance and move down and up and down. And I use those sometimes, but a lot of mine, I'll just repeat the same distance 15 times Mm -hmm. in a row. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do it because it's so easy to track and to extend. If you do 12 intervals at six minute pace and a couple of weeks later, you can do 14. And by the end of the season, you can do 16 with the same amount of rest. Like there's no question you will be better on the race day. Mm-hmm. But if you have other things throughout there, let's say, um, it doesn't even matter what, if we want to talk about those, if you have other pieces thrown in there, you might just get better at those, get a better net time and not be able to race any better. And newsflash. Running is boring <laughs> yeah. most of the time. So if, if in quote, boring workouts, uh, you know, you can't get on board with, that's that's kind of our sport, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Kind of like settling into the boredom at times, I would yeah. say. Yeah. So choosing the right workouts is important. Agreed. Understanding why the metrics of your workout are chosen and then repeating them in progressive nature. Yeah. In theory, you could probably do only two to four quality workouts all year round in different phases of training. But as long as you keep tweaking one metric to keep progressing the workout, your body will never stagnate. And to me, that's better than having 15 randomized workouts that really don't lead from one stage to the next. So I think people need to absolutely identify the correct workouts for their goal and then make sure they are repeatable in a progressive nature. Everything must progress as an endurance athlete or you're going to stagnate. Yep. I agree. And that makes me, I had another point I wanted to talk to uh, about, but I'll save it now. Um, is that when we talk about choosing the right workouts, we talk about, um, making those decisions, people take far too much rest Okay. on quality days. Uh, the, the newbie, I feel like often takes too much rest in between their interval interval reps or in hard sessions. And, and if you're an endurance athlete, it's one thing to, again, we refer back to college. It's one thing to be an 800 meter runner where like raw turnover and speed and high end actually matters. And it's another thing to like really be training for endurance, which is what we fall to in adult life. Like there's nothing less than a 5k to go run. Right. So mm-hmm. um, that calls endurance. That means like, if I go back to quarter mile repeats, like doing 12 by a quarter mile with 90 seconds rest or something high like that, it serves a purpose once in a while. But for the most part, as far as improving fitness, people people make that mistake about taking too much rest on most yeah. workouts when you're really trying to make it translate to the race course. So reducing rest on almost everything you do. Bracken, you do 1,000 meter repeats sometimes with 30 seconds rest or a minute rest. That's nothing, right? Most people would take, what, two, three, for example. And so um, I just think that's something that most runners fall into. Yeah, I would say that if I had to average my recoveries of all my workouts, 60 to 70 seconds is probably my average. No, No matter the duration of the interval or the rep? 
Now, just talking about all my workouts together, 60 oh. to 70 is my most common rest seconds. I, there is, I mean, there's merit to three by mile with three minute recovery, three, mm-hmm. four by mile with four minute recovery, something like that, because you're running hard, but it's the kind of workout that's required for a very specific race goal Yep, that you don't, you don't do year round. And we on this podcast believe that you could never touch VO2 max pace effort or faster and race just as well, but you'd have more sustainability in your progression throughout a season. And the easiest way to stay on top of your efforts is to take shorter rest. The shorter your rest is, the less hard you can work during the interval and the less you're likely to over push, overreach in training. And then it becomes way more apparent when I have two reps left in the tank. Mm-hmm. If I'm taking four minute rest, you get done with a rep, you're like, that's it. But then after three minutes, you're like, all right, I can squeeze one more out. Maybe two, who knows? Then you get halfway through the next one. You're like, shoot, like I'm trashed. But when you're taking 60 second rest and you're doing thousands, you get to four, it starts building five. It starts building six. It's really building. You're like, all right, I have a couple left in me. I'm going to do one more and be done. You stay on top of your effort a little better too. So it's like a natural rev limiter on your workout and it pushes you. The shorter your rest is, the closer it pushes you to more of a threshold workout than a VO2 max workout. Yeah. And we are always in favor of athletes going a little slower in workouts so that they can sustain better throughout a year. Yeah. Well, tell me this. I mean, how many how many rests are in the middle of a race that you've run? Has there yeah. been any rest stations in a race that you've run? I rarely get those. <laughs> <laughs> those rest stations are few and far between in racing, right? So minimizing rest in workouts translates typically better to the race course than taking big rests. Again, in a recovery week, for example, a lot of my athletes are probably scratching their head. On week four of all of my plans, which is a recovery week, Typically, if it fits into somebody's cycle, I prescribe short intervals with a lot of rest mm-hmm. to let you turn over, but not cause too much damage, for example, right? That there's purpose there. But on the regular, I would say, if you're listening to this, like take a workout you typically do, cut the rest and ha- uh, the rest in half next time and see, see what happens. I think that's going to move your needle more. And when I was first starting to coach Bracken, you know, I don't know if you've done this, but I've, you know, got on my computer and Googled like, how to run a faster 5k, like the super beginner stuff. And then diving mm-hmm. into specific workouts that let's say, you know, Salazar prescribes or any of that. And they'd be like, don't run quarter miles with 60 seconds rest, run quarter miles with a hundred meter float in between and yeah. minimize your rest. And that's where you're going to move the needle the most. And that's where that thought process started was kind of copying what some of the best do, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you're right. There are times and places for it. There are times I prescribe four minute rest between things because that's where we're at in the season. Um, if you have a, a slower athlete with a great engine, great endurance, you have to work hard, high intensity reps with long rest because that's what forces physiological changes in their body to be able to handle faster work. Yeah. But most of the time, you're right. You're better with not taking long rest and doing crazy fast intervals. It's better to be a little bit more within yourself and cut that rest and keep working while your heart rate stays up. Yep. Want me to roll into my next point? Yeah. Yeah. While you're hot, keep keep it. Keep the rock. Yeah, I'll keep the rock. All right. Um, next mistake that I think uh, the common runners make is doing what the pros do. Yes. We all have people to look up to, and that's okay. And we follow them on social media, and we try to understand what makes them great, and we try to replicate that. But I'm telling you right now, your body isn't built like theirs. 
And your life, you know, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed is not the same as theirs. And so people often do things they probably shouldn't be doing smartly in training or they're over punting their coverage as far as what they're ready for at that time. Following what the pros do. I 100% agree. And it got me thinking right away. And I'm probably mm-hmm. going to say the opposite of where you're go- not the opposite, but a different train of thought of what you're going with, with that. But I think that myself included, we get caught up in looking at the job we want rather than the job that comes and leads to the job we want. Like we see how fast they are and we see these big workouts they put out and we think that's why they're good. That's the job I need right there. I need to run three by 5k at sub 16 and then I'll be a, a 105 half marathoner and I'll qualify for the Olympic trials. Mm-hmm. No, the, the job we need is the job that came before that, which is running volume for eight to 10 years and maxing out our aerobic capacity so that we can handle the workout that this stud is currently doing. We forget mm-hmm. about the work that came before it because no one puts up their foundation work as guess what I got done seven years ago today. <laughs> like throwback <laughs> Thursday to my first 60 mile week. You don't see that, but you need those to be able to handle pro workouts. So you are right. And I think it starts with, if you find someone that you love the workouts they're doing, dive deep into the internet archives and find out what work were they doing four, six, eight, ten 10 years ago and follow that mm-hmm. progression. Well, everything's a highlight reel too, you know, like yeah. life on Instagram, life on Strava. I'm uh, one part guilty of this. I go out for a recovery run and I run slow and it automatically uploads, right? And it just left alone. It says morning run and it says nothing. And the common person who's looking at high-end athletes just glosses over that. And then that athlete goes and they do their, you know, their big hammer swing that week and they jot it down like, I did 12 by a mile with 30 minutes or 30 seconds rest, I'm, you know, crazy workout. And then you'd see that and you're like, oh, my God, that's what this person is doing. And you gloss over all of the stuff in between and you gloss over all the time they're recovering. They're a professional athlete. They're sitting on the couch or they're doing mobility. They're seeing their massage therapist once or twice a week and they're doing cryo and their physical therapist as well. And their strength coach and all these things. And then here you are going like, I need to do a quality workout Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday every week, or I need to hit this volume. When in reality, like your life isn't even close to theirs and your body again, I hate to say your body, but your body is not even close to theirs. They're physiological specimens and they're freaks that can handle things. Orion Atkins, for example, don't follow his Strava because if, if you think comparison is the root of all evil, right? Because right. you're going to see things on there and think you're inadequate. So anyways, you understand my point there. 100%. Stay in your lane would be how yeah. I would summarize that. And use it appropriately. The, the things we need to take from pro runners are percentages and ratios yeah. and breakdowns of weeks. If you look on there and be like, they're running 140 miles a week and they're doing three and a half quality workouts a week. That's a ton of quality. The Ingebrigtsons are doing five threshold sessions a week, but they're doing 100 to 120 miles running. Well, if I'm going to do 40 miles running, if I divide that by three, five divided by three is a little under two. So I maybe can do one and a half quality sessions a week right now. Mm-hmm. suddenly that's a sustainable ratio. You can do the ratio of a pro. You cannot do the workout of a pro, but you see, you start to see the layout of what they're doing. 
and you start to realize, all right, they get body work done five days a week. Mm-hmm. Well, they're also running triple the, the volume I am and they work 100% less hours. So let's scale that down to me. Can I get in once a week for a massage? Maybe once every other week, my work will cover that. Okay. Every other week, I'm going to see a Cairo, mm-hmm. you know, so it's scaling everything to what is accessible to you and your body and not just saying that is a crazy workout and that must be what's necessary to be that good. Now that workout is a byproduct of being that good. Yeah. Always comes back to the 80, 20 principle and your ratio is very different than their ratio. Yeah. And that's okay. And you can still improve, by the way. It's not like, hey, I can't do what they are doing, so I will never reach even close to what they're doing. That's actually not true at all. Even if you can get a percentage of that done on your own, um, that will facilitate like improvement. So don't feel like that's what's necessary. So so that's that's the one that's one more that comes up. I got one more that's top of mind, but you you go right now, Bracken. All right. I'm going to go off of that and off our previous ones and saying choosing to wear what the pros wear or wear what other successful people wear. And I'm going to say particularly footwear. I think the people constantly choose the wrong tool for the job. Mm-hmm. It would be absolute nonsense to try to saw through a log with a scalpel. And yet a lot of times I think that's what people are doing. They're wearing super light racing flats, which is a scalpel mm-hmm. for a road 10K when you weigh 250 pounds. Like that's just not the same as someone who weighs 105 pounds running a road 10K who's been running 140 miles per week for 10 years. It's the wrong tool for the job. Your body can't handle that impact. Your speed can't support those shoes. The shoes can't support your structure. Training in minimal shoes, training in zero drop shoes because you know someone else who does it. These are all things that for the most part, pros are one of two people. Pros are people who have have looked into every single possible shoe and chosen the absolute best shoe for themselves because they can afford it all or it's provided for them and they run in whatever's best for them mm-hmm. or they're freaks of nature who can run in whatever they want because they're super light and they're super efficient and they'll run in whatever someone pays them to run in. Well, either way, their shoe choice does not apply to you mm-hmm. at all. And it's going to get you hurt or it's going to inhibit your running. You have to choose the shoe that correctly supports your stride for every single step of your chosen distance, whether that's an easy short run, an easy long run or a race day. It has to support you all the way through, not fit the the picture of what you think is needed for a race of that distance. Yeah. Yeah. Personal opinion of mine is that people wear too little shoe too far often. Yes. Again, Shoes that are supported by um, high-end runners uh, who don't have the same body type as them. And too little shoe often leads to, one, actually fatiguing earlier in an yes, effort, first of all, which people don't really talk about. You're, you're absorbing more of that shock in your body versus the sole of the shoe absorbing that shock. And so it actually can detriment your performance, even in like something like a 5K, wearing too oh, yeah. light of a shoe can actually slow you down, which you think, oh, it's a lighter shoe. That means it's better. But that's like a very big misconception in the running world. Like if you're a hundred and even 80 pound athlete, maybe wearing a four ounce racing flat is actually going to hurt you versus wearing a seven ounce that works for you and returns your investment when the shoe hits the ground. So lighter isn't better. And I think that's one of the things I've realized over the last few years. So I very much agree with part of what you're saying. 
Yeah. So I want to start with zero drop shoes and talk about that first. I could be, I could be a whole episode in itself, but it could be. And so let's just brush over it with Mm -hmm. a few valid points. Zero drop shoes are not the end all be all answer and they are not the devil. Hmm? They are somewhere in the middle or either one of those things for every different person individually. There are ultra runners I know who, uh, for example, the 100K record was set in a pair. I think it was one, either 100K or 100 mile was set by, I believe, Zach Bitter in a pair of ultra zero drop, basically mesh and blown rubber outsole ultra shoe. Unbelievable. That is a shoe I couldn't even wear for 5K, but he did it and it works great for him. Clearly it was sustainable if he ran a minimum of 62 miles in it and it was He did something crazy fast for it, but it it might've even been a hundred mile race. But at the same time, I know people who have got injured running their recovery days in that shoe. So it it is the answer for him. Tyler Siegel, for example, example, I brought him up before. I got to chat with him while running the first nine miles of a 50K before he took off and started running a hard workout. And I was left Mm -hmm. way far behind. He is a national level ultra runner and he was sponsored by ultra for a while, zero drop foot, natural footbed shoes. And he had to go away from them because he couldn't run anything longer than like 20 miles in them without getting Achilles issues. He went to Hoka. He went, he flipped the script. Yeah. When I was there, I think he was running in Brooks Cascadia's or something like that. And he's with Mm -hmm. Hoka now, you said? When I ran a road race with him, he won. I took fifth. I think he had a pair of Hoka's on. I mean, granted this was three, four years ago, but he had a big pair of Hoka's on, on the road. So, yeah. and it wasn't a racing Hoka. It was like, dude was wearing the Clifton's to run a, run a five mile. Yeah. And he's a, he's an efficient runner. He's very, very fast. He was all American college and he's a, he's a nationally ranked ultra runner and he couldn't handle ultras for long distance. So it just goes to show that everyone's foot and body and mechanics are different. And that is okay. I know some people who are like, man, I just really wish I could run in ultras because you see so many naturally holistic, healthy runners doing that. It's like, mm-hmm. there are just as many people not doing it. Don't worry about your shoe compared to everyone else. Well, the zero drop thing has been sort of a trend and a phase. And it's like, it's like shoe world is getting more polarizing. It's like you have no drop or, or you have big cushiony pillows on your shoes. It's like we tend to be going one way or the other and there's a little in between, right? Yeah. But like, I would say the zero drop shoe is a lot like eating hot sauce. Okay. You want to know why? Because a zero drop shoe is going to injure most everybody that transitions to it if they've never run it before. And, you know, you're, you don't like spicy food if I don't, if I remember correctly. Is that right? I can't handle it very well. Okay. And some people can't handle zero drop shoes very well. So you're walking me into this, but eating spicy food is kind of like you get a dabble of spicy food. You dabble with a little Cholula and you're like, ah, it's okay. I can tolerate it. And I kind of like it. And you go back to it. Then you get a little curious and you go to the habanero and you up it and you, and you do it a little more often. And then pretty soon you need hot sauce with absolutely every meal you're eating. It needs to go on everything that you're doing. And it's like a lot like the zero drop shoes. Like you can't dive right in head first to the everyday, all day, every meal hot sauce because you're going to get injured, but you can dabble with it first and use it and sprinkle it in early before you sort of like adapt to the everyday hot sauce user. Does that make sense to you? I like it a lot, Kirk. Because Bracken could handle the big, the big heavy hot sauce right now, but maybe, nope. just maybe, if he coddled himself along for a month or two, he would figure it out. So, and and at the same end, like I'm a big Hoka proponent. 
Me for me. <laughs> I, I really like them. But I know several people who get injured when they run in hokas. Yeah. Just doesn't fit their body. Now, could they work on their biomechanics and find a stride and a foot strike pattern that works with hokas? Maybe, maybe not. But should they? Mm-hmm. Is it really worth banging their head against the wall to find out if they really can optimize that or not? I don't think so. I think it's about finding the shoe that works for you. And then racing is really key here. I think a lot of people are good at finding a shoe they can train in because you just can't go out for daily mileage. Day in, day out, feeling like crap. Eventually, like you're like, this is, isn't working. I need to get a different shoe that supports me better. So they're good at that. But then they get to race day and everything changes. Like I need a stripped down racer or in, in for trails and for off road trails. A lot of time it's true. A lot of times you can't, you wear, you can't wear your regular shoe because it's not stable enough for trails or it doesn't drain yeah. water well enough, but it's still about finding the different options that are out there that do support you. If you could see me right now, there are several racing shoes on the wall behind me. And I have so many because they each support my foot differently for different distances. I have mm-hmm. the innovate X talent right behind me. And I ran the ultra in Killington in an X-Talon. It was like an eight ounce shoe, extremely flexible, but it was wet. It was muddy. The grass was knee deep for half of the course. And you're going straight up and straight down. Mm-hmm. I did 27, 28 miles that day in those shoes. And that's fine. I think my feet were the only thing on my body that didn't get trashed. Did you see the vert in Killington this weekend, by the way? 7,000 feet this year. <laughs> like 14,000 for the ultra. Uh ridiculous that's um, wild not not to interrupt and also your shoe wall which I, I get to look at every week and our guests get to look at every week is probably the main reason we need to start maybe doing videos of our podcast recordings just because it's such a beautiful thing to look at my wall and your face kirk between those two <laughs> and your weird little mustache you got going it might be a draw oh, oh this is a beard kirk this is a beard <laughs> Yeah, but that mustache is full. I can tell that mustache should be real full if you if you push through there. I think so. Yeah, not to distract from your point. Sorry. That's all right. These Innovate X talons, though, I couldn't even wear for, I don't think, a 10-mile run on hard trail, flat and smooth and straight. Mm-hmm. They just wouldn't be the shoe I would choose. However, this Scott Super Track RC above my left shoulder here, 10-mile smooth buffed out trail, that would be an absolute delight to race in. Every foot strike would be the same. It would support me all the way through. Mm. And if you look at the super shoes above me, they're all super shoes. I have three super shoes sitting up above me. All have super foam and carbon plate. What is that? You have the Alpha Fly, the Endorphin Pro? And the RC Elite from New Balance yeah. sitting up no, here I right now. Really, okay. I would not wear any of those three for the same race. Mm-hmm. I would not take the RC Elite above 5K. I wouldn't wear the Endorphin Pro less than 5K, and I wouldn't wear it above probably 10K or half marathon. And the Alpha Fly is the only one I would take above a half marathon. They all have super foam. They all are super light. They all have a plate, but they serve totally different purposes for my stride. And the problem is nowadays, the super shoe fad says that it's so great for your legs. It's so forgiving the foam that anyone can wear one for a marathon. And that's just simply not true. You have to find the right one for the marathon still. That Endorphin Pro gives me Achilles and calf pain after a while. The RC Elite caused me way too much pronation that I can only run very fast in it. I can't run moderate in it because I pronate way too much. And the Alpha Fly, 
I could probably run until the cows come home in that shoe because it just supports me for that type of stride. So no matter what distance you're choosing, not the shoe that you see pros wearing, not the shoe that your buddy's wearing, the shoe that supports you every step of the race, because it doesn't matter how fast you feel at the beginning. It's how well you can close a race out. Mm -hmm. And if you're slapping the ground at the end with no structure underneath you, you're screwed. Listen to us getting onto shoes and then extending that topic of conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I very much agree with that. I, I think we can move on from the shoes, but, um, no, we can't. We have one last valid point to make. Oh, I have another point to get to, but okay. I'm listening Every still. runner must run quality workouts in your race shoes. hundred percent. Agree with that. That's the only way to know how well the shoes support your stride and your pace is to run race pace workouts in your shoes and see what happens. If you can't run six miles of hill reps in your Innovate X Talons or in your VJ IROX, you can't run a mountain 13-mile race in them. It's just not going to work. Mm -hmm. So you have to put your time in in training in your race shoe, but not too frequently. You need to use it as a tool, make sure it works, and that's how you find out what shoe do I race in. Now I'm done. People wear their race shoes on like recovery runs and it's one of my, it drives me nuts. It makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Like you save those race shoes, like for when you're, you're going to do something big and fast and break those shoes in, in that stride, not in that slow plotting 10 minute mile stride, break them in, in that seven minute stride. That's what we want to do. Yeah. There are freaks of nature out there. You have the John Albans, you have the Ryan Atkins who can go out and run in their VJs every single run of their lives which John has stopped doing since surgery. Mm, I saw that. He started wearing other shoes and started varying his his closet up, which I like. But even in Ryan Atkins' own family, he could go run in the extreme almost any distance, any, you know, the VJ extreme, every distance, almost any terrain for every single run. Lindsay, she's in the speed goat for a lot of her running. Yep. You know, they she varies up hers because her body is not the same type of genetic freak than Ryan's is. They're both freaks, but in different ways. So mm -hmm. you have to do what works for you personally and you have to test it out in training. Yeah. So shoes and training basically both go back to the point I made about trying to emulate what the pros do. Yeah. Um, not smart, actually, especially if you're not at their level in almost all aspects of training in life. Um, next point I wanted to move on to is um, something we had a little bit of a banter about uh, a couple episodes ago about teaching to the test. Yes. Um, most athletes, most runners don't teach to the test. And I, I mean that in the most simple, simple way of like, if you're a road runner and you're out doing five K's and, and you're a weekend warrior that way, you're probably teaching to the test because you're leaving out your front door, running down the sidewalk or the road, and you're running on specific terrain. So you're mostly teaching to the test through skill work every day in a sense. Mm -hmm. But for the trail runner, for the OCR athlete, for anybody else, we're just not seeking out the correct train often enough. And what do I mean by this? Like, how does this work for me? Well, you have a sidewalk, right? And then next to it, you have a strip of grass. You can either run on the sidewalk or you can run on that strip of grass. And sure, it's going to affect your pace by being 20 seconds a mile slower by running on this plush piece of grass. But... If you're an OCR athlete or a trail athlete, do you ever run on cement? So what, why would you do it in practice? Why don't you run on the grass next to the sidewalk and seek that terrain, even on recovery runs, quality work? Oh, I want to run fast today. Let's go hit the road or the track. My next race is 
literally going to be through the swamps of Seattle. What the heck are you doing? So teaching you the test by terrain type. If you're a non-road athlete, I'm mostly speaking to those. Don't run on your damn sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Run on the grass next to it. Like it's not that hard. Who cares about your pace? Because we race on that type of terrain. So um, that is a simple fix in my eyes. And I thought that was worth bringing up. It absolutely is. It's part of having workouts that are progressive in nature. They also have to progress to the terrain that is about to be tested. So three quick examples, three athletes that I've worked with in the last year. One got done with their first high rocks race and said, you wouldn't believe how bad my running got on my last 3000 meter intervals in that race because I was so beat up from the concrete I was running on. I said, well, what happened to all these intervals we had designed for doing the work in your garage and running out the door and running on the pavement? Didn't that prepare you? I said, oh, I did those all on my treadmill. Uh, like, yeah, but you have a Nord, you have a Nordic track treadmill. That thing has two inches of give every time you step on it. Yeah, but it was cold out or it was just easier to stay inside. It's like, well, you know who's to blame for it then? The person who didn't run their final quality workouts those last six weeks on the train they're about to race on. Yeah. Second person is the person who I work with who went out to Boston. And this is almost the same story, but it was so trashed by the downhills. We BQ'd, we got them their Boston qualifier on a flat, kind of net downhill course, and then we switched to hilly terrain work. And it turns out they didn't do their downhill work that I prescribed, and they did their uphill runs only on the treadmill. So they never got the downhill anyways, and their legs were trashed. They were so fit for uphills, they didn't have the downhill. And then the final one is I have a master's athlete who is trying to break five in the mile, wanted to set their 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 club record for uh wanted to run like 453 in a mile at something like 48 years old which is really tough to do mm-hmm. we did so much over speed work and we did so much cadence work and blistered terribly in his spikes on the track and was falling apart like how did you ever blister in your race shoes on race day like well i got new spikes this week i did all my work in flats i didn't do spikes it's like well Again, this sounds like I'm railing against athletes, but I'm just railing against people not doing what it takes to be good at your event. I said, what about the asterisk we had in every workout in the last seven weeks, which said done on track in race shoes? I said, oh, well, I wasn't sure if I was going to run spikes or not. And he broke in new spikes in the race and he blistered. Mm. Now, blisters can happen in ultras, but if it's not an ultra distance, I don't believe anyone should ever blister on race day because your socks and shoes should have been used so many times that you know exactly where your blister spots are and you already have your preventative actions done. I don't think anyone should ever blister on race day unless you're on feet for longer than maybe 90 minutes because it just shouldn't even be possible. Yeah. And yet it happens if you don't follow that teach to the test rule, Kirk. Yeah. So I know I really stood up on my soapbox, but it aches. It just aches deep in my gut when people put in the work and can't even access it on race day, it's all out the window because they made one simple mistake. We spoke to two different angles of uh, teaching to the test, and that is like terrain, duh, yeah, right? And then like where your contact point is at the ground and yeah. making sure that that's solid. I think we talked about that last episode. So um, I agree, man. I, I just think that the, the terrain thing is like, Again, I don't think most of our listeners are road runners. I could be wrong at this point. I'm not sure. But I I would think most are still 
probably racing on the trails or an OCR. And you think like, even to my point about just run on soft terrain or other things that, yeah, I get you need to leave out of your neighborhood. So you have to run in an urban environment, which isn't where we race typically, but run on the grass, not that hard. Okay. Um, the, the other part of that is running on soft terrain like that also can actually still like make you a better firm terrain runner in a sense where it helps you create more power. So it still does translate to firm terrain if you're running on soft terrain. For sure. Um, so I just think that point is worth being made clear too. And if that means saving your shin splints a little bit by running on the grass instead of the the roads, even though you're a firm terrain racer, like uh, on the roads, I still think it could serve a purpose like like that way. Like don't shy away from that. So um, last thing I wanted to add to that point. Okay. Yeah. Something many, 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 many athletes do that they need to avoid doing is running workouts and races without a proper warm up. Ugh. Biggest pet peeve, I think. If you get to a race day or race week and you have to reach out and say, what kind of workout should I be doing before this? You have failed in your buildup. What kind of workout or what kind of warm-up? Oh, sorry. What, what kind of warm-up okay. do I need to do before this? You have failed in your buildup because you could not have possibly gotten everything out of your, your workouts, your quality days, if you haven't been doing full warm-ups. And you will not get everything out of your race if you're not doing a full warm-up. And what that warm-up is to you is very personal. And you have to practice it all the time. But we've used it before, the analogy, you can't take a cold car, crank it up in winter and just floor it and expect it to be efficient and fast. Same thing as with our body. You can't skip the state. The human body has stages of warming up and being at its peak efficiency. And you can't skip them. It has to get through that time anyways. And it's either going to spend its time doing that and feeling terrible in the first mile of the race, or you're going to get it done before the race. But either way, like that bill must be paid. Yeah. Bills always come due, don't they? They do. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I, I, I mean, we've done an episode on warming up and cooling down and our thoughts on that, but oh my goodness, the novice everydayer goes out and literally says, I'm going to, I'm going to somewhat emulate Ryan Hall's workout and I'm going to do three by a mile. I'll scale it to me. And they literally walk to the end of their driveway and they hit the start button and they go run a mile all out and they wonder why it's probably the worst experience of their life. It's very true. I had an athlete once who, um, so I prescribe on, on most of my plans. It says, you know, roughly, let's say a five to 20 minute warm up, depending on who you are. And then, you know, stopping dynamics and then get into your workout. And then, and then cooling down afterwards. And then I had an athlete who on their race day, I had prescribed race. Like you got the Spartan, whatever race this day. That's all I said. And they said, man, the pace in the beginning just caught me off guard. And I felt like junk getting into it. And I said, well, why didn't you get your warm up in like normal? And they said, well, no, it wasn't on my, my plan. I just wrote race on that day. It's bad coaching. And (laughs) fairly, it is bad coaching. I I assume that they would go through their normal race warm up or workout protocol and they Mm -hmm. didn't. And then, and and they, it was okay. It was a super and they ended up getting their legs underneath them in the second half. But point being is they didn't follow the typical program and, and they actually really suffered early on. So that's kind of one example right there. I think I would rather forget my race shoes than my warm up. 100% agree. I think I'd rather run in 
in just casual shoes or regular trainers, but get a full warm up in than have to jump into a race with no warm up but my race shoes on. Agreed. And we know how obsessed I am with shoes. That should tell you how important a warm up is to me. Enough said right there, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what, anything else uh, jump out at you? I know it's been a little, not disorganized, but a little less structured than the checklist episode last week. But what else comes to mind? This is not a totally standalone point. It kind of builds off a of previous, but all runners need to stop programming paces on easy days. How many athletes do you and I talk to that say, well, you know, I tried to hit a 740 on my easy days and I just wasn't able to this week. I think, well, there's your problem. Don't try to hit anything on easy days. We script our paces on quality days and we script our heart rate on easy days. And that is it full stop. Stop trying to hit a pace on easy days and think that that equates to progression as a runner. If you do everything else correctly, your easy days can get faster over time. Mm. But I'm going to refer you back to the greatest marathoner ever who ran 431 per mile for 26.2 miles and starts some easy days at 830 or nine minutes per mile. Mm -hmm. You'd think he'd progressed a little more in his career if he could start at 740 per mile or 640 or 540 because that's still almost a minute and a half slower than marathon pace. But he doesn't need to, so he doesn't. Scripting easy day pace is a fool's errand. We all have done it and it is not, I will even say it's not a metric. It's not a metric. It's fake. Don't do it. I agree. I completely agree. And the only way that I, I think I would like to use pace on recovery days, by the way, uh, which you and I haven't really discussed, but would be when the run is done and you've only looked at heart rate for your recovery run, you've kept it in check. You've done what you should you kept the governor on and then you look and you say, Jesus, like I'm 20 seconds per mile faster today at the same heart rate. Um, it's an after the fact, but then it says, Hey, maybe my underlying aerobic conditioning has improved because now my recovery run pace is getting faster, even though I'm keeping my heart rate in the same zone. So I do use that as a unit of measure with my athletes when um, they're running faster on recovery days, but they're still abiding by the heart rate principle. Mm -hmm. But we're not leading with that. In fact, it's not even noted during the run itself. It's only acknowledged afterwards. So I think that's a, a point to touch on as well. I don't know if you agree with that or subscribe to that or not, but yeah, something I like it. Acknowledged. Yeah, I do. Okay, Kirk, I have one last. How many do you have left? Um, zero. All right, mine's going to start. It's a read redaction slash apology slash a rule to stop doing redaction or retraction redacting is just crossing out something that's been said i believe so i'm retracting a statement or redacting it i don't think anyone really knows do you know how many uh messages i got on the uh on the growing uh... <laughs> i hope hundreds <laughs> oh that was so funny to me i loved it so so many but the redacting and retracting just kind of reminds me of it so all right uh, I think one of the most harmful things I've done to the running community <laughs> was in the, in the, okay. the race tactics episode, when I talked about the creatine phosphate, uh, bonds yep. for free energy at the start of a race. Yeah, we got, oh, we got about, oh, I don't know, 20 seconds of free energy said. And you do. But I think that's a case where it didn't need to be said. 
my point was not taken at face value. It was a lot of people heard something that uh, they wanted to hear or took it and ran with it. Ooh, there's, there's a pun in that sentence. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I think I'm partially responsible for some people getting out too hard in a race. And so has, I'm has going to start over. Spoken? Has this been directly like related to you? Indirectly, as in I've seen people go out harder that I know didn't go out hard. And I've talked to them about this in the past. Okay. So you need to stop starting a race at a pace that's not sustainable for you. And that's it. That's all of us. Runners like to start off at the pace they hope they can keep rather than the pace they know they can keep and then build up. But the very best runners start at a pace that they know they can launch from when the time comes. And I've made a big point of you need to be in contact in order to match people through terrain if you're off-road racing or on downhills or technique if you're OCR racing. And I'm just going to throw that all out for the time being and say, run the pace you're capable of until you're ready to shift to the next gear rather than setting yourself up for failure in races. The vast majority of runners start out too fast and finish too slow. And every second you gain at the beginning, you give back double in the second half because you're fading. And the only way to run fast at the end of a race is to be attacking. And the only way to be attacking is to not be blown up. So I'm going to say, forget your, your creatin, your phosphate creatin bonds, forget those and run out and ease into your race. That might be the most important thing people hear today. I don't know. It might be because yes, can starting off fast, the first hundred meters be basically free energy. Yes. But does it cause your heart rate to rise very quickly, especially if you treat it as true free energy and you're pumping and you're maybe holding your breath a little bit and you're not being smooth and efficient. You're just saying there's no rules and you're just charging out. There's nowhere to go, but down from there. All you can Mm -hmm. do is feel less good from there. All you can do is be passed from there because you've probably passed people who you would have been behind to start with. All you can do is slow down from there. And mentally, it'll put you in a place where you probably don't want to be. So I'm redacting that statement. It's gone from the record. Strike it out. Do not start out faster than you can maintain. I'm going to give you a pardon here, though, because we look at this through OCR tinted glasses. And track both but when you talk about these this surge in the middle or in the beginning of a a race like in ocr there's exceptions because staying in contact is important but for anything other than that um i fully believe what you are saying so i don't think you need to like redact what you had said i'm going to (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but because it's it's applicable. Look at Chris Brown in Asheville. Yeah, and, and you're right. For example, it made his race. So there is, there's exceptions. So I don't think you need to feel too guilty about that. But there's a difference, right? Chris ran from maybe his A pace to his A plus race. Like that was his pace difference from A to A plus. Okay. Rather than going out as I'm running my A plus to I'm running people two levels above me A plus. Right. Like there's a difference between getting out in contact with the person you're supposed to be trying to beat versus getting out with the front of the pack with someone you have no chance ever in any world staying with. Mm-hmm. Like that first surge is to get you into position, not to get you ahead of your position because it's free energy. Yeah. That's all going to come back. And and I've done some more looking into races and thinking back on race experiences, and I'm not even going to buy the bottleneck excuse anymore. 
How many times has Hobie Call or John Albin or Ryan Atkins been stuck behind someone early in a race and they just calmly pick their point and then they make their move up and go? Bottlenecks are frustrating to people who get caught behind big groups later in the day or who don't have the engine to make up for getting caught behind to start with, which means you're probably going the right pace anyway. You just got separated from people you probably couldn't stay with. Robert Killian got bottlenecked at the stadium race this weekend, but he picked his spot and he had the engine to move up. So I'm going to say no. Don't worry about the bottlenecks to some extent because probably you're just getting ahead of people you shouldn't be ahead of anyway. Yeah. Same goes for like single track, I think you're probably speaking to as well. Yeah. And so maybe in six weeks, I have to take this statement back. But I'd rather save some people some heartbeats at the beginning of a race and then say, oh, I just finished way too hard. I had too much left, which you almost never hear. So let's do that for a while. I'm on board. Let's do that for a while. Okay. I like it. That was a good point being made, though, about going out too hard. Uh, Gosh, it's it's not going to be 99 out of 100 times. It's not going to be the way to race your best and finish the fastest. Um, I like that. Nothing else came up in your brain? I guess prehab, Kirk. Aren't we all terrible at staying on top of the little niggles? The first time something rears its head, we don't fix it then. We wait until it takes us out, and then we go try to fix it. It's everybody. So all runners should be more in tune with their bodies and stay on top of the admin work. Let's leave it at that, because that could turn into another 20 minutes. That's it. Stay on top of your admin work. Well, right. You know what I mean, though? Like People yeah. are going to say, what what is what is admin work and what is prehab and what do I do and how do I know what to do and all of that. And maybe we should come up with, maybe we should, we should throw one of those out there. I guess we haven't done a a full episode on that, but yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. We, uh, Bracken, we got a a busy trip to the U S postal service over here in the DeWint household. How did that sale work Kirk? Because all I see are notifications when things go out of stock. You handle all the shipping. So I saw some things go out of stock, but I don't know what numbers were like. Did we did we move some shirts? Well, I got we move we moved some damn shirts. Okay. I, I get so I have it set up so I get a um a notification from my uh PayPal, which is where the money goes, uh to my email. So every time and you put that post up and you and you put the shirts on sale. And then I checked my email like three hours later and I had like a hundred emails and I had got stressed as shit because I didn't know what was going on. I was like, oh my God. And it was just shirt order after shirt order coming through. So I could click delete them and track them. But anyways, shirts, they are almost gone, folks, I believe. They're 10 bucks a piece right now. Uh, so go on buy one. And like I mentioned last episode, even if they're not maybe the perfect size for you, just do what Bracken does and take a scissors to every single part of that t-shirt. So it makes you, so it makes you you look more muscular than you really are. You know, you can crop it to fit. Crop top season. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for the support. Those are the little things that, that make us feel validated and putting out blathering content every single week. Yeah. And that also means that Bracken, you and I get to go back to the lab and uh, design a couple more shirts because these are going. So that means replacing inventory with uh, different stuff. Excellent. You know, I think we stay on the, the the plan of releasing new and unique each time. And then if we ever get a call for the nostalgia, we'll bring one of the old designs back. I think we keep the running public uh, yellow, yellow. In, in stock and then, we, and then we play outside of there. Yeah. I like it. All right, man. I'm off to run.
Good. I already uh, did my workout today because I'm a responsible human. Well, I lifted this morning and now it's afternoon runtime. Good luck, man. Glad to see how your fitness is coming along. I'm actually really curious to get sort of a fitness update from you coming up. I am fighting to not jump into the Indiana Beast next weekend, this weekend. <laughs> it's a fighting. good sign to let us know how your training's going. I like hearing that, And Don't do it, but I really like hearing that. Good. Don't forget about that conversation you had with Rich Ryan a month ago or two. I am getting it tattooed across my face to not jump into races. <laughs> good. All right. Well, till next time, folks. Thank you very much for listening.